Welcome to the Cowie Baptist Church podcast. To learn more about Cowie, including in our gathering times, visit us online at cowie.church. Enjoy the message. Amen. Thank you, choir. We pledge allegiance to the Lamb of God who, in His great mercy, has made a way for us to be reconciled to a holy God as we come together and worship uh, our great God this morning. I am uh, truly thankful and blessed by the freedoms that we have to gather uh, as His people. Uh, thank God for the freedoms that we have in this great nation. You know, as we connect in this morning and as we begin to uh, look into God's Word, we're going to be in Exodus chapter number uh, 34 today, maybe the end of 33 and 34, so you can take your copy of God's Word and turn there. Uh, we have been in the midst of a series called In the Wild, and in this uh, thought process, if you're uh, just joining with us today, we've been looking at this reality that we live in the midst of this broken world. And we've been talking about what it's like to live uh, in the wild. And in the midst of the wild, there's all kind of questions, there's all kind of things uh, that come up. And as much as we celebrate and love this great nation that we live in, when we look around this nation, we see a lot of things that should deeply concern the people of God. We live in a nation that many times is referred to as a Christian nation, but if you look at our nation, the things that we see do not represent the God that we serve. And in the midst of a day like today, I think about what that means for us. What does it look like to be a people who serve the one true God in the midst of a broken world, in the midst of a culture and a place where many people have forgotten God. Many, even in the midst of this nation that would identify themselves as Christians, would describe the one true God in a way that does not represent him accurately. That they would have an inaccurate view of who God is. It's interesting to look at some statistics. Uh, statistics say, a Barna stat say that just one in four Americans would qualify as practicing Christians. And it's interesting, those statistics have dropped by half since the year 2000. Many would agree that 59% of Americans would say that the Holy Spirit is a force but is not a personal being. For one in five, 20% of Americans would say that the Holy Spirit could tell them to do something that is forbidden in God's holy word. You know, as we've walked through this, we've said that it's so important that we find north, that we figure out where we're at in the midst of these moments and that we have an accurate uh, direction. That's, that's that whole picture of when we're lost in the woods. If we can find north, then we can get our bearings. And so as we look at that, we've had a week where we just said, you know what, this is the infallible, inerrant word of God, and that we uh, lean into that. And that is our source of morality. That is our source of, of truth. And we live, though, in a time where in the years that have passed recent, there's been a shift from truth to 
this thought of whatever you believe can be true. Interesting statistics continue to show that, that this nation that, that we live in and when we survey those that are in our nation, that the definition of immorality has shifted so much in our culture. What was a generation ago called sin is now accepted and celebrated. And we live in an age of outrage, an age where whoever screams the loudest can be seemingly viewed as correct. LifeWay statistics shared that fewer than one in two adults, 44 years old and younger, would say that something that is morally right or wrong does not change. That's, a, that's an interesting statistic to say that, that so many in our culture would, would say that there's no absolute standard of morality and that morality shifts and changes with time. And, and, and you know, it's, it's good in a sense that the older generation, that 63% of those 65 and older say that what's morally right or wrong does not change. That's good news, but the bad news is is that there's a generation that's coming up that doesn't believe that to be true. And as people who love our great God and pledge allegiance to Him, as those who worship the one true God and live in the midst of a culture that has shifted in so many ways, we have an obligation to declare the good news of who He is. Is. And, and we said that as we walk through the series that the way that we find north is that we recognize who God is. And last week we said that God is great, that we serve a God who uh, is greater uh, than anything we could ever imagine. And we spent all week just talking about the greatness of our God. And we use this thought that God is great and God is good. A.W. Tozer said this, what comes to our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And so what comes to our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about any of us. I heard the story of this little girl who was in her art class. She was in the third grade and she was uh, very excited about some art that she was working on and she had been working uh, maybe longer than any of the students in class and she began to uh, just continue to draw and draw and the teacher came by and said, what are you working on? And uh, the little girl said, well, uh, she said, I'm drawing a picture of God. And she went right back to work. And the teacher, she was a Christian teacher, and she began to lean over and look in. And she said, boy, she said, Sally, that's going to be really tough. She said, because the Bible says no one has seen what God looks like, right? That no one uh, has, has seen him. Nobody knows what he looks like. And the little girl just kept on drawing and finally looked up at the teacher. And she said, if you'll give me just a few more minutes, she said, they will. <laughs> God is great and God is good. And, and if I were to, uh, to lean into that thought and, and were to say God is good, you might respond. Let's try that. God is good and all the time. So when we hear those kind of things, we would probably emphatically say that we all believe that, that we all embrace that truth. And, and we have this thought that so many of our children would, would pray that prayer before a meal that would say, God is great and God is good. But my question is, what does that mean in the midst of our land? What does it mean in the midst of this world? What do they understand that to mean? What do, what do we understand that to mean? 
subconsciously, what do we think of when we think of that? You know, many times I'll send a prayer request out and we will see uh, a tremendous praise report in that. I sent one out this week about Paul and he was uh, going into a heart cath and, and I sent out an update following that that everything had come back good. And when we do that, there's this thought that we have in our mind and we say, God is good. But what about when the answer is different than we desire? And we're going to, yeah, he's still good. What about when things don't come out the way that we might plan? You know, I've never, I don't remember ever sending a prayer request where the news was different than we looked at and someone responding, God is good. Although that is a time where we are desperately in need of the reminder that God is good. And we're going to talk in the coming weeks about why God allows evil, the things that are there. But when we think about those things in the midst of this world that is broken in the midst of the wild that we live in we so desperately need a picture of who our God is that can change the circumstances that can change our perspective and we as followers of Jesus Christ are called to make disciples to go into all the world and proclaim the goodness of God to proclaim who he is and it is an accurate picture of him that this world is desperate to see so what does it mean that God is good. We see in Exodus chapter 33 and 34 that Moses was desperate to see God as he is. And we're going to allow God to define uh, himself today. He had been communicating with God in the tent of meeting, but he wanted more. And, and he, in verse 18 of chapter 33, Moses prays this prayer. And it's a prayer that we all would do well to pray. And this prayer is this. He said, I pray you show me your glory. Now, Moses was asking that, that he would be able to see God in all of his glory, something that would sustain and encourage him for the journey. I can't uh, imagine uh, what was going through Moses' mind in these moments. And, and if he only knew the journey that he would have. In verse 19, God responds and he says this, I myself will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim the name of the Lord before you and will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show compassion on whom I will show compassion. And so God responds and he says, I'm going to proclaim my great name. But then he gives some parameters that are there and we see some things about our God in that he says but he said you cannot see my face for no man can see me and live then the Lord said behold there is a place by me and you shall stand there on the rock and it will come about while my glory is passing by that I will put you in the cleft of the rock and will cover you with my hand until I have passed by 34 verse 1 he says now the Lord said to Moses Cut out for yourself two stone tablets like the former ones, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the former tablets which you shattered. So be ready by morning, and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai, and present yourself there to me on top of the mountain. No man is to come up with you, nor let any man be seen anywhere on the mountain. Even the flocks and the herds may not graze in front of that mountain. And so God gives Moses some things that he needs to prepare for. He, he gives him uh, some things that he needs to do before he gets a glimpse of who God is, before God reveals uh, his 
goodness to him. He says there's some things that you need to do. Now, if we set the stage for this passage, we can remember in Exodus 32 that Moses uh, had been up on the mountain, right? He'd been receiving uh, the tablets, right? And in those, uh, that time, that there's this time that he's up on the mountain and the people are grumbling, the people are uh, complaining, the people are saying, you know, he's been up there way uh, too long. He, he's been up there uh, and in this uh, delay, uh, they say to Aaron, they say, listen, you need to make us a God that we can worship. We don't know if Moses is is coming back, and you need to fashion us a God that, uh, that, that represents this God that has delivered us from Egypt. And so uh, we read in the scriptures that they take all this gold and they give it to Aaron, and Aaron fashions a God, uh, and, and he fashions this idol that is, is to represent uh, the God that they worship to them, but it is, a, it is something that it does not represent. God. And then they fashioned this calf, right? They put all this gold in and Moses asked him later, he says, what in the world happened? He says, well, he said, we, 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 you know, they were wanting a God. They were nervous about it. He kind of the same blame game that we see uh, in Adam and Eve. We see those kind of things. And he says, we put in all this gold and then a, a verse that just blows my mind in scripture, but it sounds so much like our kids. Maybe we've even said something like this. We just put all the gold in there and just out popped the calf. Like nothing like like it just, I, I don't know what happened. I was just kind of going that direction and out popped a, a calf. And I'm afraid that somehow as America has continued uh, on their journey that we have fashioned a God in so many ways that does not represent the God of the Bible. And when people think about who God is and we declare that God is good, there are so many in our midst that would define that so differently than the scriptures would define. There are so many that would define that and say, well, if God is good, it means that he must uh, conform to what I believe he should uh, look like. The, the morals uh, should not be, no longer, uh, is he condemning or, or, or all these things that he is just a God of love. But what we see is that when God reveals himself, he reveals himself in the wholeness of who he is. And when Moses sees this, he smashes the first set of tablets. We see him in that righteous anger. And then God says, cut for yourself these tablets. And he says, I'm going to write on them. Now, these tablets, right, they would contain the law, right? They would contain the Ten Commandments. And, and can I remind you that these commandments are not uh, these uh, cruel commandments that God has given to, uh, to uh, hamper his people, but they are sweet solutions that allow people who are free to experience true freedom. They reveal to us so much of the character and the heart of God. The law that is revealed by this lawgiver reveals the heart of God. It tells us about the goodness. It tells us about the holiness. We see even in this passage just this picture of the greatness of God. He says, you, Moses, you've been chosen to, to mediate between the people and you can come up this mountain, but don't let anybody else near it. Don't let the, the cattle graze near it because it, this, this mountain, the holiness of God, his presence in this mountain, it, it's made sacred and sinners uninvited and unannounced into the presence of a holy God would have been destroyed. David Jeremiah says this about the holiness of God. He said, if we don't understand the holiness of God, we might think of ourselves as reasonably good people. But if we get a glimpse of the holiness of God, we will never argue that point again. The standard of all morality is God's absolute, perfect, unsullied holiness. Anything that falls short of that can never measure up for fellowship with a holy God. And that includes me. I'm in that group, and so are you, as all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. 
There's this holiness that we see in this passage and, and the greatness of our God. And here Moses, he's been chosen to represent uh, the people before God. And verse 4, he says, so he cuts out, he, he follows directions where he's, he's obedient in this place. He cuts out two stone tablets like the former ones. And Moses rose up early, right? He is excited. He, God has said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pass by and I'm going to let you see a glimpse of, of who I am. And, and Moses rises up early in the morning and he goes to Mount Sinai. The scripture says, as the Lord commanded him, he took two stone tablets in his hand. Now, we're going to see God is going to renew uh, his covenant with his people. Uh, In verse 1, it says that God is going to write on these tablets. If you look later in verse 27, uh, we see that God gave these words to Moses, and he wrote. And it's a beautiful picture of how we receive uh, scripture. There's no contradiction in this word. We see that God gave these words to Moses, and this time Moses wrote. So which one wrote, Moses or God? The answer is both. Right, So we see this picture uh, of the way we get uh, Scripture. We see the, the beauty of how God reveals himself. Verse 5, Scripture says, The Lord descended in the cloud. So Moses has gotten up early. He's been in this moment. He's done just as he's instructed. And he goes prepared uh, to meet with the Lord. And the verse 5 says, The Lord descended in the cloud and stood there with him as he called on the name of of the Lord. Now, we talked last week about the greatness of our God, but I want to remind you that the Lord descended. No matter how high we get, no matter how lofty we might think, no matter how high we climb, in the midst of perspective to our great God, we are so small, right? When we read in the Psalms last week, we said that God would be so great and so big, but yet he would be mindful of us, right? He is the maker, and we are the ones who are made, and he is mindful of us. We see in this passage, God is holy, and we or not, and for us to relate to God, God has to choose to reveal Himself to us. He must infinitely descend to meet with us in order to reveal Himself to us. Our God is great, and it should be something that we are in awe of that He is mindful of us and that He meets with us. Uh, C.S. Lewis said, In God, you come up against something which is in every respect immeasurably superior to yourself. And unless you know God as that and therefore know yourself as nothing in comparison, you do not know God at all. We have a God who is great. But we're going to see in this passage that we also have a God who is good. I'm so thankful that not only is he great, but that he is good and that he is merciful. And he's going to reveal himself to Moses. And I'm thinking Moses is probably expecting something that is going to be bigger than anything he could ever imagine. I'm wondering, in the best of our estimation of what things are going to look like, is it going to be fireworks like Moses has seen the burning bushes? Now, is there going to be fireworks? Is there going to be, how is God going to reveal himself? And what we see God do is he gives him a sermon. And it's a sermon with two points. It's a sermon that God gives about God. So when we see a sermon that God wrote about himself, we know it's going to be the greatest sermon. And he's going to have two points. He's going to give him two things. He says, you're going to see my goodness in my name, and you're going to see my goodness in my nature. Scripture says in verse 6 that the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth. Now, this verse we see quoted throughout the scriptures. It's quoted often. King David uh, would pray uh, this prayer. He would pray and say, Lord, you are compassionate and you are a gracious God. You're slow to anger. You're abounding in loving kindness. We'd see uh, the, the words of, of Jonah, right, when he's upset about God's mercy to Nineveh. He'd say, we know these things uh, about you. We know these kind of things. And what we see in this passage, if we want to know about God, it's not uh, in a picture that this little girl drew. It's not in 
uh, being able to see what he looks like, but it's being able to understand who he is. And he reminds Moses of how perfect and infinitely beautiful he is. God is good, and he declares it through his name. Look in the first verses. He said, the, the Lord, the Lord. In verse 6, he says, the Lord, the Lord, God. He declares it through his name, Yahweh, Yahweh El. And that first word is this thought we looked at last week, that I am who I am, and I will be who I will be. Yahweh, El, the one true God. El is this, this picture or this, this title of the one true God, and it focuses on his greatness, his power, his might. When we read and we look at the scriptures, we see that we have a God who, who changes not, right? A God who, when we, when we think about morals changing and shifting, we say that God's word is true and that he is immutable, that, that there's nothing about God that changes. He is omnipotent. He is all-powerful. He is all-present. He is all-knowing. Last week, we talked about his aseity, right? That he is a self-existing God, that he created everything, but he was not created, that he is self-existent, that he is in need of nothing, that he is transcendent, that he is above and separate from all creation, that he is infinite in his holiness and is transcendent, but yet he is present with us. He is imminent uh, with us, that he is eternal, that he is sovereign, that he is the King of kings and Lord of lords. We have a God who is the one true God, and he is worthy to be praised. And all that is revealed in his name. All that is revealed in my Lord, the Lord, Lord God, right? This is who he is, the name that is above every name. God is good, and his goodness is declared through his name. But look as he goes on. His goodness is described in his nature. And so God begins to reveal who he is to Moses. And he says this. He says, the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate, right? That we have a God who is compassionate, that he looks on us in our need, and he has, he has compassion. He has sympathy, right? He has pity for us in our, our frame, right? That God we have a God who is compassionate. We have a God who is gracious, who is merciful and kind. That word gracious just means merciful and kind. I'm so grateful this morning that we have a God who is merciful and kind. A God who is gracious. A God who doesn't give us what we deserve, right? That's mercy when we deserve punishment when our kids have done something and we withhold punishment we 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 extend mercy to them God doesn't give us what we do deserve he has mercy on us and in his grace he gives us what we don't deserve this is a God who is a God of mercy and grace Maxie Dunham tells the story of a woman who took a friend with her when she went uh, to a photographer to have her picture taken and they had gone on a uh, an extensive journey that day. They had gone to the beauty parlor, and the beauty parlor had worked on her hair. All these things had taken place, and she uh, had, had came in her best, and she came to the seat there uh, in uh, the photography uh, studio, and, and the guy's adjusting the lights. He's getting ready uh, to just take the perfect pictures, and she looks at him and says, Now be sure to do me justice. And the lady that had been going with her all day uh, said this with a twinkle in her eye, What you need is not justice, it's mercy, right? And what we need is not justice, it's mercy. And I'm so thankful that we have a gracious and a merciful God, a God who is compassionate. He goes on and he says he's compassionate and gracious, slow to anger. There's this picture of patience. God is long-suffering. He's slow to anger. And, and it's 
not this picture that he just kind of puts it off for a while and then loses his temper, but it's this picture that God is long-suffering toward his creation, even when they are rejecting him, even when they are rebelling, and he desires repentance, and he is graciously patient. But what we've got to be careful of is that we don't mistake his long-suffering toward us as him being a God who condones sin. And see, that's what we've got to be so careful with in the midst of this world that we live in. Second Peter 3 verse 9 says the Lord is uh, long-suffering toward us, right? That he's not slack concerning his promise, but is uh, long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. We have a God who is long-suffering toward his creation, that he's long-suffering toward us, desiring that we would repent. But he is a God who eventually will judge all sin. Scripture says the Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth. The the Hebrew word for love that's used here is uh, translated loving kindness in many passages and it gives this picture of this loyal love and truth, this faithfulness of our great God. So we have a God who is gracious, who's slow to anger, who is abounding in loving kindness and truth. His faithfulness extends to all generations. Even when we are not faithful, we have a God who is. Look at verse 7, though. He says, who keeps his loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. Yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. Now, the first part of that verse, we love, right? That we have a forgiving God, that we have a God who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. And we don't have to break down all those words, but I think what we're seeing in this passage is a God who forgives all sin. Who, and this word for forgive, it's this picture of removing a weight or carrying something. And so we have a great God who extends his mercy to thousands, who loves, who forgives, who removes the weight and the guilt of our sin, who lifts and carries that And it's easy to stop in that moment. It's easy for us to say, this is who our God is. It's easy to stop and say, this is the extent of it. God is merciful and he's gracious and he's loving. And he extends his mercy to thousands. He extends his grace that he is forgiving, that he forgives all sin, that he is that kind of God. And we're so grateful for that God. But we would only see a part of how God revealed himself. And if we're not careful we can create a golden calf that doesn't reveal our creator. We can create a God that is popular in our culture. We can create a God that, that people can embrace and a God who is without uh, judgment or a God who is without any uh, desire uh, to uh, see sin atone for. A God who has no desire to see sin punished. But this scripture says that he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. Can I tell you that we also see in this passage that we have a God who is perfectly just. We have a God who is loving, a God who is gracious, a God who is merciful, but we have a God who is perfectly just. He is all, and we must see him in his fullness, and we, as followers of Jesus Christ, must declare him in his fullness. Because it's in light of God's justice, it's in light of his punishment of sinners, it is in light of God's punishment of the guilty that his mercy and grace are truly displayed. C.S. Lewis said that mercy 
detached from justice grows unmerciful. That's an important paradox. As there are plants which will flourish only in mountain soil, so it appears that mercy will flower only when it grows in the crannies of the rock of justice. So in this passage, is God reveals his goodness. He reveals himself that he is righteous, that he is holy, that he is loving, that he is merciful, that he is gracious. But he is also a God who punishes sin. And in the midst of a culture who tries to paint a picture of Christ that was never con- condemning, we see in the scripture that Jesus warned about judgment to come. That he talked about hell more than anyone. We see God reveal himself in this passage and he says that he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. And that's heavy to think about. He says, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. Now we know that children and grandchildren are not uh, condemned for the sins of their ancestors. Warren Wiersbe says, but they may suffer because of those sins. In an apologetics Bible that I have, Ted Cagmill, who has a, uh, just a neat way of, of putting things in perspective, says this in a footnote. He says, although this verse seems to say that God punishes children for the sins of their parents, it's not the case. God does not condemn children because of their parents' misbehavior. See Deuteronomy 24, 16, Ezekiel 18, 20. However, children suffer the consequences of their parents' sinful choices. A parent's adultery, substance abuse, manipulation, or other dysfunctional behavior establishes a pattern that children model as they mature. The result can be a repetition of their parents' emotional brokenness leading to conflict, divorce, poverty, or other conditions that make their children's and even their grandchildren's life difficult. We have a God who forgives, but he does not undo the consequences of sin. And sometimes, and some sins continue to impact and shape people's lives long after the sinner has passed away. And so here we find ourselves in the midst of a culture where there's no question that morality has declined in incredible ways. There's no question that what was once called sin is now celebrated and seen all over our television screens, brought into our homes. We see just this decay of morality in our culture. We see uh, the, the, the truth uh, of God's Word uh, discounted. We see the, the belief in the God of Scripture uh, in so many ways not a part of our culture. But we come this morning and we know that we have a God who is good. We have a God. What, what is an answer to a culture that is in the midst of a place that they're in where they define God in ways that are contrary to the Scripture and where we declare that God is good? How do we engage in a culture like that and the truth is that the gospel intersects all those things and it's beautiful because God demonstrates his goodness he demonstrates his grace he demonstrates his mercy and he maintains his justice in the gospel of Jesus Christ and in the the work of the cross God in his goodness it's demonstrated to us on the cross he revealed it right in his nature he he shared it as he described his name but his goodness is demonstrated on the cross and the God that revealed himself to Moses has given himself to us in Jesus Christ. And it's in Jesus Christ that God reveals himself to us. It's in the person and work of Jesus Christ. You'll see this on the screen. It's where where the mercy and grace of God perfectly intersect with the holiness and justice of God. And it declares once and for all the goodness of God. See, it's only at the cross that God's goodness 
is fully displayed. It's only at the cross that, that God's justice and his mercy and his grace and his wrath, all those things intersect perfectly on the cross. Romans 3.26 says, For the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time, so that he would be the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. It is the proclamation of the cross of Christ. It is the gospel of God that Jesus' death satisfied the justice of God. He will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. He satisfied his own righteous demand so that he could show mercy and grace to me and you. He, he satisfied the righteous demands of uh, of himself so that he would show mercy and grace to those that would turn from their sin and trust him for salvation. He will by no means leave the guilty unpunishment. Jesus suffered the punishment that I deserved and he satisfies the justice of God. And because of the cross, we can know that the Lord is compassionate, that he is gracious, that he is slow to anger, that he is abounding in loving kindness and truth. Because in the midst of a broken world, we know that God is good. This world is broken. But there's a God who's good in the midst that is redeeming those who will trust him, those who will believe in his name. And in the midst of the brokenness, in the midst of the hurt, in the midst of all those things, as we are desperately in need of a nation to hear of a people all around us to hear of who God is, that he is a God who is loving and gracious and merciful, but he is a holy God, a God that cannot condone sin, a God that cannot allow sin into his presence. And the reality is that we are sinful people, that we are people that have all sinned and fallen short of the goodness of God. And to compare it when we see and get a glimpse of his holiness and of his goodness, we realize how desperately we are in need of a righteousness that's outside of ourself and through the cross. God has made a way for sinful humanity separated from him to be made right with God and to, to, be, to be forgiven, to experience his grace and his goodness. And the response that we see in this passage to the goodness of God, to his grace, to his mercy, to his righteousness, to an accurate picture of who he is was in verse 8. As Moses humbly bows down before the Lord. Scripture says this, that Moses made haste to bow low toward the earth and to worship. He surrendered. He recognized just the greatness of this God. And it's my heart that we would come together today as we celebrate the great freedom that we have. The, the privilege that we have to worship our great God. That we might use that freedom in a way that would declare his goodness to all those that are around us because the reality is that there's coming a day where God will not leave the guilty unpunished. And we know the truth. We know who our God is. We've seen it revealed to us in the scriptures and we know that he is a God of justice and mercy and a God of grace. But he is a God who will not condone sin and as a nation as a people right? when God looks to a nation he looks to his people 2 Chronicles 7 said if my people who are called by my name would humble themselves and pray and seek my face Moses said I want to see your glory he said I want to see your face that's really what he said I want to see who you are and when he did 
God said, this is who I am. God who is merciful and gracious and loving, but a God who will not leave the guilty unpunished. A God who is holy. He said, if my people who are called by my name would humble themselves and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, he said, then I would hear from heaven. Then I would heal their land. The only hope that we have in my humble and greatest estimation as I look at our nation is that there might be an awakening among God's people. That there might be an awakening among God's people that would say, you know what? We see. We see who you are, God, and we return to that. Not a God that we have crafted in our own imagination. Not a God that we have formed that we will worship in place of who you are. But the God of the Bible, a God who is who is infinitely holy, who is infinitely pure, and who desires that his people would walk in that, that would pursue holiness, that would honor him, that would turn from the sinful ways of this nation, and that we might trust him, that we might find ourselves in humble worship like Moses, that we might turn from our wicked ways, that we might seek his face, that we might trust him. Because in the midst of this crazy world, we have a God who is great. We have a God who is good. His goodness is not revealed in his condoning of sin, but his goodness is revealed in him taking on all of our sin on the cross. When you say God is good, it's defined by the cross. Not by our circumstances, not by response in the moments of this broken world but it's defined by his goodness revealed to us in the gift of his son Jesus in our place, taking on all of my sin, all of my shame, and dying for me. May we proclaim the goodness of God in a world so desperately in need of that truth. I want to invite you just to bow your head and close your eyes. We're going to have just a time where Kay's going to come and we're going to play. We can... I want to pray for us, and then I want to invite you just to stand uh, together. And if you have a need, um, we would love to pray for you. We'd love to pray with you. If you've never trusted in Jesus, the, the reality is that we see his goodness displayed in the cross. And that those who would believe and trust in him could turn from their sin and from their ways. And they could find grace and mercy. John 8 we see this picture of this woman who was caught in the very act of adultery caught in this sinful situation we see her brought before Jesus and we see we see his response was of grace and of mercy but we see him look at her and tell her to leave her life of sin to go and sin no more we have a God who responds to the repentance of his people and he restores he forgives he lifts him up a God who in his greatness is willing to come and to meet with us to reveal himself to us and I pray this morning in the power of his spirit that he might do that that we might see ourselves accurately before him him and his infinite holiness and goodness. Us in the reality that we have sinned and fallen short of that glory. That because of that sin, because of our sin, the wages of sin is death. Separation from God, 
eternal separation from God in a place called hell. But, but God demonstrated to us his love, his mercy, his graciousness, his goodness. We see his justice. We see it all displayed on the cross of Christ. Where while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And through trusting in him, he offers forgiveness and grace and restoration. If you've never trusted Jesus this morning, we invite you to come to the God who has revealed himself in the scriptures, the God of the Bible. The God who loves you so much that he took your place. That the eternal son of God stepped out from the glories of heaven and that he died on that cross. An atoning sacrifice so that the guilty would not go unpunished. But he took that punishment upon himself. Through faith in Christ, through believing in him and the finished work of the cross, we are made right with a holy God. So thankful this morning that he became sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God.